Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. Today, we're happy to introduce you to Stefan, founding partner of AlphaQ, a newly launched fund of fun in Berlin. The team is raising a 1 billion euro fund to back both emerging and establishing VCs in Europe and beyond. We dive deep on their model and mission to democratize access to the asset class, what they look for and what you can expect from them. So strap in and welcome Stefan and his team to the European VC scene. Before we get on with the episode, we want to direct your attention to our upcoming fireside on raising VC funds in certain times. Just hit up our LinkedIn page and register for the LinkedIn Live on June the 7th, 3 p.m. Central European time. Stefan, welcome to the show. It is so awesome to have you with us and thanks a million for accepting this invitation. You know that we'll be pushing you a bit because we're trying to be a bit the watchdogs of uh, TPs when we're interviewing LPs. So <laughs> thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Uh, looking forward to be pushed and uh, don't mind me pushing back. going <laughs> <laughs> to be fun. <laughs> Before we start, let's just hear a bit about you. You're the new kid on the LP block. So tell us more what have gotten you here. Yeah, so I mean, my background is initially in corporate finance. I started after my university and then I was recruited by Rocket Internet in 2011. And through Rocket, I moved to Groupon, London, until 2015. After Groupon, I co-founded a company called Watchmaster. It's a luxury watch e-commerce platform. We were buying watches on our own balance sheet in the beginning and always comparing working capital loans. I found the process of comparing these loans really stupid and slow and going to banks, having bad coffee, always delivering more documents. I thought, why is there not a digital process for this? So I've started my next startup called FinCompare. FinCompare is a SaaS-enabled marketplace for SMEs to find, compare, and close the best financing solutions. We also included financial advisors and brokers in that system and sold the company last year to the Volksbanken Group, one of Germany's largest banking groups. Yeah, and so over the years, I always I started my companies always by wanting to solve a personal problem almost that I realized a lot of other people had. Yeah, Watchmaster was started when... I got a watch when I was 18 and wanted to actually sell that watch and found the process of going to a shop really dodgy. Yeah, most of these shops, they're near a main train station. So you're kind of in an alleyway. It's kind of dark. And then you're sitting in these like shops that usually smell a little bit dodgy. They also sell all kinds of antiques and strange stuff. And then they sell you a price and you have no idea whether that price is real. But you also don't want to sell it on eBay because... You don't have to trust. You don't want to be online with your expensive watch. So I built Watchmaster. Then FinCompare, I didn't want to go to the banks all the time. So I built FinCompare and wanted to solve that problem. The same is true for AlphaQ. I have invested in about 20 startups. My partners also have been active angel investors. And active angel investing is actually a lot of work if you do it over the years, right? With a portfolio of 20 companies, you have to spend a lot of time every year to look after the companies, to, if you actually care for your money. I mean, you can do it very passively and sign it all away. But if you want to read the contracts, this takes time. And so I thought the initial idea for our fund of fund was really, hey, why is there not an ETF on top of venture capital, right? That was really the core idea. And yeah, from that, this whole 
beast has emerged. Yeah, I mean, the cat is out of the head. Now, yeah, we're an LP. Yeah, <laughs> by coincidence. I was desperately hoping that you were going to say that. Then as a VC, I went to a bunch of rich-ass LPs and, and I felt no one should ever have to go through that. And then I created my own yeah. LP. <laughs> it's really, if you were looking at the problem scale overall, I think there's so many fantastic GPs out there and there are more and more coming and it's a really crowded but lively marketplace, right? It's not that crazy competitive still. Everybody's helping each other, but in it's professionalizing. A lot of the knowledge has been passed down from the sort of first VCs in Europe, the US VCs moving to Europe. So it's becoming professionalized and mature. And when you look at the entire value chain of the sort of money flow, if you will, yeah, then you actually realize, okay, there's a much bigger problem to be solved on the LP world. In Europe, we have less than, I think, 0.2% of large asset allocators, so insurances and endowments, allocating to VC. And most of this money that is actually being allocated is allocated to super large US VCs. Yeah? So there are certain fundamental issues in this LP allocation space that we want to solve while at the same time having a vision of listing the whole structure one day and therefore making it a liquid structure. Yeah? So providing early LPs with some form of liquidity, but also democratizing the asset class. In Germany alone, you have around 2 million people working in the fringes of venture capital, right? These are lawyers, these are junior VCs, these are people that don't have the money to do angel investing. They certainly don't have the money to invest into VC funds at scale, but they do have ETFs. They do have to pay into their pension schemes, etc. And so why is there not a product for them to actually invest into these early stage companies and participate in that over 20, 30 years? And so this is really a big vision that drives us long term, right? And I think, you know, this is baby steps. We have to get there somehow. And today is still day one. It's kind of cool that you put it that way because that, for me, explains the biggest reason why we really wanted to have you <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> because now, nah, but it's very mission aligned with what we ourselves believe in and are trying to do, right? And our more kind of long-term listeners know that, that we really believe in democratizing access to the asset class for people who are active in venture, right? And that's exactly what we're doing yes. with our syndicates. A completely different way of trying to do it, but it's only good that we're all trying to do something about it and in different yeah. ways. And, and I think it will only be good in the long term. I actually, David, I think we first got to talk because I reached out to your partner who in his LinkedIn tagline had democratizing access to VC. I wrote to him, what the fuck? We haven't spoken yet. <laughs> 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 yeah, but there are different customer demands out there, right? And I think this is part of a maturing asset class, right? So it's not one size fits all. It's not like everybody has to only buy one product, right? There are certain investors that prefer a well-managed product, like a fund of fund, because a fund of fund has a certain expertise, right? They have actually the time to invest into scouting and doing due diligences on these funds and actively working with the GPs. So they provide a certain security and de-risking for the LP. And then there's other ways to invest where you prefer to go direct, right? Where you say, okay, I have a certain expertise in the fund. I know the names. I may be even knowing the managers, but I don't have the 200,000, 500,000, 5 million minimum tickets in order to actually participate in that. And so if I can break this down into smaller tickets and make this available for people who want to be more, let's say, stock pickers in that sense, yeah, that they say that they want to go direct, then this is fantastic, right? This is really important for the ecosystem and a big sign of how the entire industry is maturing. Throwing off the script entirely, <laughs> I'd love to, to double down on what you're saying there, Stefan, and hear 
because it, we believe that this is the perfect selling point to any family office out there, any person getting started in VC investing. That should be a fund of fund as the entry point, and then you can go direct as you please and start looking at deals that you get through your network, that kind of thing, rather than almost blindly join in an angel club and start doing some stuff. Exactly. <laughs> What's the market uptake on, uh, because you're talking to a lot of LPs these days, I'd love to hear how are people reacting to that message. I just came back from Singapore, actually, and we are really talking to LPs around the world because venture is a global phenomenon right now. Yeah, So we do see that the network effects for venture, for GPs, etc., they're still hyper-local, so it always depends on local access to founders, local access to certain industry niche, to so countries. But LPs look at it from a global scale and global phenomenon because unicorns can come out of any country almost these days. Yeah, And so that's why, obviously, LPs are very interested to get access to VCs around the world and to learn about ecosystems. And so, again, to your point, fund of funds are a great way to build up knowledge and to learn about the best GPs out there to either go direct and invest into them or go direct into the startups in later stage rounds when it's pre-IPO, late stage, where most of the family offices around the world have actually very strong experience when it comes to direct investment, private equity style deals. Yeah, And so looking at the current financial markets where you see tech stocks obviously being rather red, <laughs> I think... <laughs> You know, this has trickled down to venture, obviously, and we do see 50 to 90% corrections in valuations, especially in late stage. For us, what we said, and I mean, this was even before the markets have dropped, we said we want to focus on early stage and early growth funds. So that means that we only invest in funds that go up to Series B, maybe Series C, depends a little bit on the ecosystems. And we only invest in funds that are below 500 million in size, because we believe that the actual GP funds, right, the actual VC funds, they need to be smaller. Yeah, So small is beautiful in venture because only then can you have spend time with the best founders, can you scout, can you actually do the whole work. If you want to do empire building with a VC, it's usually not the best in terms of returns. And LPs are realizing that, especially the ones that are more professional. They have seen Tiger Global, they have seen some of these crazy funds, and you know their returns look fantastic up to a certain point, and now they just don't look that way anymore. And as a former founder, I can just tell you that, you know, the problems that a startup is facing, most of them you can't just kind of flush away with more money. I think a startup is sometimes like a good wine. You know, it needs a couple of decades to mature, maybe in the worst case, yeah? So you need to let it rest, yeah? Just keep it, <laughs> give it some time, yeah? And then something beautiful will come out of it. And I think this is sometimes rushed and i think you know you see that with the vision funds portfolio you see that with tiger's portfolio they try to rush it with money and now they have to pay the price who is still winning in this whole equation it's the early stage funds yeah and this is where we are extremely bullish because we see a lot of innovation happening there it's funny what you say because with lpl appetite there for the big name funds david has a great story about how through his network we secured access to one of the tier one funds in the u.s and we raised $3 million for that in 24 hours. <laughs> and that was just the performance of that fund. You know, okay, you're quite sure you're going to get a 3x, but uh, it's not going to be more, it's not going to be less. And that's not really what we're doing VC for, right? <laughs> I think the US funds, some of them perform really well. And I think a 3x sometimes is actually okay for a lot of LPs, to be honest. And, I, you know, it's just what we see that with these very large funds, it becomes much, much harder to actually make these returns. And also the LPs, they are looking 
for more direct investment opportunities. So this is another big trend. Obviously, these LPs want to go direct. And in Germany and Europe, we see a lot of family offices that have zero exposure to venture. And the ones that have exposure to venture, they believe that they are a better VC. Yeah, So they kind of started, in my point of view, the wrong way around by doing kind of an angel club or going direct into some startups. And honestly, over the last 10 years, you didn't have to be a very good picker. I mean, you could have had a monkey do the job in most cases, right? Because just a lot of the startups just went up and with the stock market going like it went, right? It was actually a relatively easy job, yeah? But the next 10 years, it will be much, much harder to allocate properly, yeah? So you need to pick and picking is actually the hard part around it. And so I think a lot of the family offices that have gone directly and are competing with VCs on seed round and series A will find it much, much harder. And so they have a demand for fund of funds. Yeah. So they're actively looking for some products like ours. And again, I think this is from a timing standpoint for us, at least quite good timing. Yeah. So the market has corrected or is correcting. So it's now a great time to buy in and uh, LP demand to alternative assets is still very high. We believe that, especially also with a European team and distributed European team, we have a team in Israel as well, we can provide global LPs with a super unique product. And this is so far working quite well for us. I have to ask you, Stefan, because there's this question I get very often that really, really pisses me off. (laughs) But I'm curious to hear how do you react to it? And I think the question itself speaks a lot to the profile of LP, but let's ignore that. You know, often when we're talking about ourselves and our syndicate activity, we get a lot, ah, yeah, but that's basically a fund to fund strategy. That's just fees on fees, right? Doesn't that just make it super hard to deliver returns? How do you react to something like that? I always say we're building a quality product, right? You know, what car are they driving, right? Are they driving a Porsche or are they driving, I don't know, a Japanese or not even Japanese, but some sort of China version of a Porsche? Yeah, so... At the end of the day, you're paying somebody to do the picking for you. Yeah. So if you look at especially emerging managers, especially also smaller funds around the world, yeah, not in the typical hubs, maybe also, yeah. So where you also try to, even within Europe, you try to go a little bit outside of just Berlin, Munich, London, Paris, right? And there are so many other great cities where funds are emerging. And this is a lot of work. Yeah? And every LP that has tried this in the past, they realize this costs money. So if they would hire an internal team to do that kind of job, this would actually, you know, cost also something, right? This isn't a free service where you can just go on, I don't know, a flight search engine and just pick VC funds and then this will all work out. It's not a commoditized product in that sense. Yeah. So you need to have a certain skill set. And we have not had many issues. If you look at best practice for family offices and the AUM that you need to you know, for the very knowledgeable (laughs) to say that, yes, you should definitely be doing your own VC firm or your own VC investing, then not many European family offices reach that threshold of uh, around 500 to a billion (laughs) uh, under management. Yeah, and it's not just the under management portion that is relevant. It's the frequency, right? It's like the same as going to the gym. It doesn't help if you go to the gym once, yeah, you will not get a six-pack. You need to go for two, three years almost every day. (laughs) And... The same is true for venture, right? You need to invest in every vintage and you need to think every vintage again about your portfolio strategy, about your allocations, et cetera, about your re-ups. And this actually takes time. So you need to probably invest per vintage at least 50 million, probably better even 200 million. Yeah. So this is sort of the data we have looked at where, you know, anywhere between 50 and 200 million, it starts to make sense if you invest in every single vintage. But there's, you know, how many family offices are out there 
that invest 50 to 200 million in early stage and early growth VC, if this is even 20% of their portfolio, think of the assets and the management they have yeah, and the wealth. This is not really realistic. Yeah? And so I think yeah. there is so much demand for fund of fund products out there and especially independent fund of fund products because we are not like the European Investment Fund or the KFW, which are all, you know, great, great giants on the shoulders we are standing, right? We couldn't be where we are without them. But all of them offer certain restrictions. All of them have strings attached with the government structures around. And I find it wonderful that there's more and more independence in this sort of fund-of-fund world also in Europe. I uh, have to say to whoever's listening in, we've had a interesting LP roundtable that was launched before this episode with a colleague, Stefan, actually, where we talked about some of the topics we just touched here about the market, the liquidity of, the, of venture by design, the pros and cons of that. So I'd invite you all to listen to that. Marcus from Alpha Q is there. But Stefan, we've been talking about all of this, but we haven't really given you the time to do a proper introduction of Alpha Q. And I want to start <laughs> off by saying... You guys are ballsy because you came on the radar of, of many people with an announcement of a 1 billion euro fund of funds. That is quite reflective, I would say, of your founder mindset, even as a company. You know, give us the rundown. What is AlphaQ? So AlphaQ is a fund of fund. We have structured as a German stock corporation. So our investors are actually shareholders of the stock corporation. So it's, you could say it's a Berkshire Hathaway structure for venture. And that allows us to list the whole structure at some point on the stock exchange and make it retail accessible. Now, in order to do that, we have some constraints. Yeah? And as founders, we are solving problems all the time. And so we have to work within these constraints. One constraint was that we need three full years of financial statements in order to list the structure. That brings us to about 2026 for the earliest IPO window. Yeah? And then we can decide based on current market sentiment if we want to go through with it or if we want to keep the structure private for a couple of more years. The second constraint was that in order to list a vehicle, you need a certain size in order to provide enough liquidity and in order to be listed on the right exchange. And the size is a billion. Yeah? So this is just the constraint we have to work in. And so we said, okay, we want to raise and invest at least one billion in the private markets, then list the whole structure not actually raising much additional capital in an IPO, probably less than 20%. Yeah, we don't know yet, but it's not going to be a lot. And then the structure will be public. Yeah, and that's complete, it will change the, completely the dynamics again. Yeah, so there will be a different focus, very much centered around the pension gap that we face in Europe, because we see that there are more and more countries working on equity based pension programs, which will significantly shift investor behavior across Europe where I think there is a certain demand and certain niche, certain niche demand maybe only for a VC portfolio product. We don't even need that much demand for a product like this to fully work in the public markets. Yeah? So this is a little bit where we are working towards. But from a regulatory standpoint or from a vision standpoint, we are an uncapped vehicle in that sense. As an evergreen structure, we are recycling our gains to a certain extent. So we also pay dividends, but we are also recycling. And so this brings us to a compounding effect. So this is multiple positive implications in the long term. And the second big advantage of that structure is that investors can benefit from a cost averaging effect. So they can invest into the exact same structure every year and therefore benefit from having exposure to multiple vintages and not risking hitting a bad vintage, which for a fund of fund can also happen. Yeah, If you have a fund of fund and it has a bad vintage, it's, there's not much you can do about it. 
for our structure, it's much lower volatility in that sense because we do secondaries and primaries in existing and new vintages. What I think is interesting about the model of AlphaQ is its ability to unlock some of this capital that has never been deployed in the asset class, right? Yes. However, it is not vanilla <laughs> in any way <laughs> or form, right? <laughs> so I'd love to hear um, you sharing how has that been? And when I'm talking about capital that needs to be unlocked and hasn't, I'm talking mostly about pension funds, right, basically. Yeah. I'm curious to hear how that dynamic is going because you do believe a lot in unlocking that capital, but you're not selling something that's easy to sell because it's different. Yeah, it's there's two ways around this or about this. Yeah, I think one is obviously it's not plain vanilla compared to normal venture funds and you know, venture capital as a whole has been a cottage industry, right? So it's been completely amateur run, like very, very few real financial experts in the whole venture capital ecosystem. But if you look at the LP world, their largest exposure are hedge funds and private equity funds in the alternative markets. And there, the structure is actually not that uncommon, right? So they are still a bit different, but there are structures in private equity that are exactly the same. Yeah, So there are comparable structures and for a lot of the institutional investors out there they understand it and they are not really you know they actually like the structure because it's actually more common what they're used to than compared to venture where they always have a risk of being locked in for very very long the big advantage we have with this structure is we don't really care for ticket size yeah and that means also on the small scale so for us shareholder management is really easy as an ag as a german stock corporation we can handle 200k minimum ticket investors really easily and we can handle 200 million investors easily as well. So we believe, and I mean, we need to get there, obviously, right? So this is not a problem for today, but probably a, a problem for next year, is that we need to get to this 50 to 100 million threshold, and we are well on the way to get there. And then we'll start unlocking some very large LPs, because right now these large LPs that want to deploy at least 100 million into the asset class, they are struggling by having a mismatch of ticket sizes. Yeah, so they can't hold more than 10% of a fund. There is not an, a 1 billion VC fund in Europe, and there shouldn't also be in the early stage, right? I think that would be terrible. And so we actually believe in small is beautiful. So most funds should actually stay around 200 million. They really outperform, yeah, and should even be sometimes much smaller. So there's a certain arbitrage game that we are focused on, on taking these very large tickets and breaking them down into smaller tickets and therefore really outperforming also the return expectations of some of these large LPs. This is really sort of the idea behind the structure, that on one hand we can democratize it and make it accessible to retail investors in the long term, like super small tickets, while at the same time allowing very large tickets to tap into the asset class that so far we're unable to really do that. Can I ask an extremely provocative question, Stefan? <laughs> Go to town. <laughs> so what is your reply to... Uh, <laughs> a comment like, so here's a bunch of successful founders and they're building a VC platform and they're already talking about exit. Well, it's not an exit. We are not selling the company, right? So just because the fund is listed doesn't mean we'd make a single euro, right? It's not like selling a company or something like this. The management company is completely independent of the actual stock structure and we have to continue to manage it. And I think especially with LPs that we are working with, this is not like a startup where an LP would yeah. expect us to sell the company in five to 10 years. Most of these LPs, they want to work with us over the next 20, 30 years or sometimes even longer, right? They have generational questions where they really say, okay, how does this structure look in two, three generations of my family? Yeah, so you really have to look after this long-term vision. And I think this is why sometimes maybe our numbers sound large, but I think 
you know, this is the patience that comes with it, right? You need to take these baby steps and you need to have a very big and bold vision to go after. And this is maybe our founder mindset. Yeah, I think if you don't aim high enough, you will definitely never get there. And I think this is maybe a little bit different to some of the other fund of funds that have been around in Europe, where you have multiple hundred million fund of funds and private banks that are just not ambitious, right? And then they raise a hundred million from their wealthy clients. And then they invest this into five super large US funds, extremely boring products. And this is not really helping the ecosystem. And so I think we can really change that with our structure. Hats off to the ambition. I love that. I think given that we have a bunch of GPs listening in, I think we should really narrow the conversation now down to what is it that you guys are investing in and why should people reach out to you? But let's start with, are you already deploying? And can you share with us who have you invested in and, and what are you looking for? Absolutely. So I can disclose already two funds. We've invested in four, two we can't disclose yet. But I'll start off with explaining our investment strategy. We are investing along a model that we call a barbell model, where on one hand of the barbell, we have the, what we perceive the less risky VCs, the sort of tier one established funds, Project A, Speed Invest, Balderton, Excel, you know, the funds that we all know and love. Yeah, and <laughs> Some of them really perform extremely well. Some of them have strong brands, strong networks also. We dare look for consistent performance. We don't really expect them to do 10x or crazy, you know, returns. We are happy with this 3-4x return, right? This is completely fine, yeah? And these funds are usually a little bit larger, between 200 million and 500 million, never more than 500 million. On the other hand of the barbell, we invest in emerging breakout VCs, right? So these are the people that you have sometimes on your podcast. These are, you know, the new up-and-coming VCs, usually fund generation, one or two, very often micro VCs, very, very focused. The established ones are usually generalists. They have wider focus in their investment thesis. We always match that to our sort of mega trends, what we really look at in GPs. But the emerging managers, they usually have a specialization in a certain field or maybe a certain region, and they can really outperform. Yeah, So they can really do 10x, sometimes even 100x we've seen in some funds. Yeah, So really crazy outlier performance. Could I just ask you, Stefan, you said never more than 500 million funds, but Axel and Index and Balderton, they're all far beyond that. Is that because you think on a fund level, not on an AUM level? Oh, as on, a, on a fund level. We think on a fund, we always think on a fund level, not on an AUM level. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I don't think a Balderton fund is more than 500 million. Yeah, not a single one. No, no. Actually, just no. close to, I think... Three of about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, interesting. Okay. So we, we always think of it from a fund level. Then how about ticket sizes for you? What do you do when I think it's too small? <laughs> There's not really much in Europe that's too big, so I don't want to ask that. <laughs> yeah, we never invest more than 10% of a fund, but we also go as small as 200, 250K. Because you asked the question, we've done Nucleus Capital, for example. It's a micro VC in Berlin focused on food tech. We love Max. He's super cool. Yeah, exactly. Max is a fantastic guy, brings a ton of experience in the space, has a fantastic portfolio, is already great follow-on investors. So for us, we strongly believe in this food tech space, synthetic biology, etc., where he has a huge expertise. So this is sort of on the small side, in the emerging manager side of our barbell. LP's listening in. He's coming out in a couple of months probably for uh, for the next fund. So uh, do reach out. Yeah, if we don't take all the fund. Yeah, let's see. 
<laughs> the good thing is once you have your foot in the door, <laughs> you only take 10%, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Exactly. But there are the LPs, obviously. So I'm kidding. We started uh, 250K and then we go up to right now to 20, 25 million as sort of a max right now. Obviously, with our 500 million, let's say, threshold, we can do up to 50 million potentially. But right now, we don't want to really do that. Yeah. So, but that obviously depends on our fund size. Yeah. The largest, we've done two, five million tickets. And this is sort of the ticket sizes we play with right now. And then the obvious question who should reach out to you? What are you looking for? Look, for us, it's really important to be a value at LP. And I think, again, as a from coming from the founder experience, you know, the best VCs that I got to meet as a founder were the ones that always took the time to respond. Yeah, so I have a huge respect as a founder to Rob Moffat from Balderton. Big shout out to him. He's a guy that always responded to me yeah, as a founder, always, right? It didn't matter how busy he was. He always wrote back very, very quickly and very straight also, right? He's also told me, no, you know, it's not like bullshit. Like, don't have a call with me if you don't want to talk to me. It's totally fine or don't meet me. At least respond, have some respect. And I think this... You know, I will never forget that behavior when I was starting up my fundraising as a founder. And this just stays with you, you know, 10 years later. And I think we hear so many GPs complain about some LPs where when they were starting off, I don't want to name any names, but, you know, big Berlin brands where everybody would love to be invested in. They tell you about their first fundraise and say, okay, they were at a fund of fund and they were made to wait an hour and a half. And then the guy only had 10 minutes for them, basically just told them how great he was and <laughs> why they're even building a fund. And these are the bullshit stories out there. And so we want to be different. And that's why, you know, I think if a VC is, thinks they are good, right? If they're serious about us, if they have a vision to raise the next fund, if they're in it for the long term, then it doesn't matter how big they are, they should reach out to us. We are talking to almost everyone right now and we're trying to give them feedback. We're trying to share with them. So we've built multiple sort of best practices when it comes to how to build a data room, due diligence questions, ESG policies, like all these little things that are important to institutional investors. We openly share this with GPs, even if we say no to them. And we sometimes have to say no because we are also fundraising, right? We have a rolling close every month. We have, you know, five, 10 million coming in. So we can always deploy some capital, but we, you know, we are also restricted in the capital that we can deploy. So it's about building relationships, being open, sharing knowledge, and also making introductions. So we have done multiple introductions already to GPs, which we found very interesting, where we introduced them to family offices that we know that are actively looking for exactly that type of fund or even institutional investors. Well, how about verticals and so on? Do you have any preference? I mean, in terms of verticals, we are focused around mega trends. Yeah, so for us, these mega trends are things that are generally ineffected by any changes to inflation or any big changes to the market. So one big group of mega trends is connectivity. So we strongly believe that with low orbit satellite, with industry 4.0, with sensors, a lot of things will change, and that's where we want to see VCs investing into. Yeah. The next big bucket is neoecology, where we see that climate change and everything around the ESG topics. Uh, these are obviously massive, massive trends. This is probably one of the biggest problems that we are facing as a society as a whole. And I personally believe that the solutions to this will not just come from putting up more solar and more windmills and stuff like this, but actually by startups innovating in the way we are producing alternative proteins, in the way we are producing 
generally plastics and other products, but also in logistics. The next big topic is around health. So we really look for GPs that invest everywhere in the health space. So this can be around uh, sports and things like this, but it can also be around synthetic biology, longevity, and trends like this, where we see that especially in like terms like biotech, for example. Yeah, biotech in the LP world has always uh, sort of mixed feelings. Yeah, biotech, they always think of research-heavy clinical trials, really sort of old-school R&D stuff. And, but the last 10 years, technology has so much advanced that we see a lot of biotech companies in exclamation marks that hire engineers, data scientists, and people that are not biologists, but really people that can handle data and software. And this is where we are really excited about in this health space that you have an intersection of technology and other traditional sciences. The next big topic is yeah, Web3, where we look not really at coins or investing into funds that invest into coins, but we invest into funds that look for the infrastructure of Web3, right? So we have seen that from Web 1.0 to Web 2.0, everything has changed when it comes to server infrastructure, DevOps, backends, etc., and I think this will also change massively when we are transitioning to a Web3 world. And there are other things like Metaverse that are more probably zero or one outcomes. Let's see about that, how these things will play out. But definitely gaming as a sort of Web3 associated subtrend, this will be massive. Yeah, gaming is one of the fastest growing industries. If you looked at the COVID years, there were so many gaming PCs sold you know, they will continue to be used over the next years. Yeah. So um, they're very expensive. Yeah. So <laughs> we are excited about that. Then the fifth topic is urbanization. So we, we do see a growing population in the world. We see migration in the world. And this will have um, big impacts on mobility, on how cities will be structured. You see this with e-bikes. You see this with like a quick commerce. You could bulk under there. Although we are not that bullish on that specifically, but there's other things that obviously the whole trend of urbanization will matter for decades to come. Last but not least is productivity. So COVID has moved about 900 million people online. We see that enterprises have started to invest heavily in SaaS tools. You know, I've built a fintech. We were selling software to banks. Before COVID, everybody was like, no, we can't do this in the cloud. This is all really complicated and such a security risk. And suddenly... Within two days, they had Slack, they had Teams, they had Zoom, they had everything that before that for years it was impossible to use. You know, I think that with that trend, that's here to stay. Yeah? So COVID has moved a lot of people online, especially corporates and mid-sized companies, and they will continue to invest into cloud, into enterprise SaaS tools. But also I think productivity is very relevant when it comes to the inflation that we see currently, because in the U.S., we see we will probably see interest rates uh, continue to increase to 4 or 5%. In Europe, we can't increase interest rates that much mm. because otherwise France and the southern European countries would all be bankrupt. So we will see a maximum of 2% in Europe. And the only way we can solve inflation is by increased productivity. Yeah, This is, I think, the only way out of this. And technology will play a massive role in that. So these are the six mega trends that we look for in GPs where we want to have on the emerging manager side, strong specialists in these fields. Yeah? And on the generalist side, at least some sort of focus on this and expertise in the team, because we believe that over the next decades, these will be the big, big shifters and big returners when it comes to VC. I think given that we don't have much time left and 
you said very clearly you want to be a value at LP. So I think that to make sure that we do do justice to that statement, we should jump to that conversation saying, what is it that you add value on? Sure. So I think one key aspect is that we are an institutional LP yeah, with a very long-term permanent pool of capital. So we can kind of continue to invest into a fund like a large endowment, but we are also founders. And I think this is very important that we speak the VC's language. We understand that building a portfolio takes time and you have with every VC, you have this time where you have your write-offs, yeah, but your winners have not yet fully emerged. So this is like, and exactly in that time, you need to raise your next fund. Yeah. So this is really the tough time. And I think you want somebody there that understands this. And I think there are certain LPs that are ex experts that understand this, but in a less experienced LPs like family offices sometimes or even corporates or so, this can be a massive problem if you want to raise your next fund. Yeah, and you, you may produce a fantastic return on that fund, but it just takes a little bit longer and there's a mismatch in timing when your portfolio just looks more sexy. Yeah, and I think we can solve some of that. The next big topic is that we think of us as, you know, not just money, but really problem solvers. And we have discovered that there are certain problems around the, how GPs are structured, which is, for example, pre-financing capital costs. So we can use some of our dry powder and we have built a lending vehicle in order to pre-finance capital costs for our GPs. And this is, I think, very important because there are certain banks out there that can offer this, but they charge you relatively high interest rates for this. And we can offer that at 0% interest rates and just use it as a value-added feature as part of being inside our circle. The second lending product that we have developed is around pre-financing GP commitments. So we have seen, not just with emerging managers, but actually this is a problem also for established managers who are really struggling to build a young partnership. Yeah, So VC is always a generational topic. Yeah, If you want to invest into the best funds with a huge track record, yeah, But the partners get older. If the funds were successful, they made money. So are they still going to be as hungry? Are they still going to go out and hunt for the best founders? Sometimes, but not always. And so they need to find younger partners also to join the partnership. And then they need to buy into the partnership. And this is sometimes very expensive. We do see that there is a certain yeah, niche there in the market in order to pre-finance GP commitments. And we can use this also as a cornerstone product for us. Yeah. The third topic is that Since we are focused on early stage and early growth, and most of our LPs, they want to invest later stage, we can actually help the VCs to keep their pro rata. So most GPs, especially the micro funds, they're losing their pro rata very, very quickly. And then they have to set up SPVs and then they go to the LPs and most of the institutional LPs, they are lacking the firepower or the speed in order to then commit to these SPVs. We have set up a structure that better allows our LPs to then invest into these SPVs. And therefore, for the GP, it's fantastic to keep their pro rata, to stay strong, but also for the founder and the startup underneath, the cap table stays lean, right? I think this is another big topic which is important. You always need to think of cap table management and keeping cap tables relatively lean. Uh, and so I think providing this as a service is very important. I think these are sort of the three core items. The other things that we are trying to do, but I think everybody is saying that and we have to put the proof is, you know, where the pudding is at, the proof is in the pudding, is obviously building a network. Yeah, So we want to really bring our LPs together with our GPs, allow them to meet, right? This is not secret. We want to be open. We want uh, actually our LPs to invest into 
our best GPs over time. Yeah, And if there's no space in the round, maybe invest into the companies, but have active deal flow sharing. And this deal flow sharing, we are also trying to do within the portfolio. When we are investing into pre-seed funds, uh, we are trying to help our later stage, like C, Series A funds, to discover the best portfolio companies of our pre-seed funds yeah? and, and helping this network. I think everybody's saying that for us, it's a little bit early to to kind of show yeah. how good we are at that. But let's talk again in a year or better talk to some of our GPs and yeah. I hope they will confirm this, that we are actually the best in that. That could be a cool episode in a year with uh, you or someone from AlphaQ and then one or two of the GPs. <laughs> it's always it's always cool to have <laughs> both perspectives, I find. Now, the provider topic is super interesting. Everyone's talking about it on LP world. And then you talk with GPs and no LP is actually equipped to act on it within the time frame that is needed, right? Because you need the agility to be able yes. to, to execute on it quickly. Let's not dwell on that because we're running out of time. And Stefan, we always end the episodes with a quick fire round. And these are a set of quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each are you ready? Sure, let's go. First question of the quickfire round. In European VC, what areas excite you the most that other people don't really feel excited about? And here you've pinpointed six megatrends. I challenge you to choose one and something specific inside of one. For me, the biggest excitement in Europe is actually around the deep tech and hard tech space. I didn't mention it before, but I worked at Intel for about a year and a half and run their early stage startup activities across Europe. And for me, this was fantastic to learn actually what's happening in the semiconductor space and really deep tech, hard tech space across Europe. And there are so many fantastic universities that are slowly opening up to venture and are starting to educate not just fantastic engineers, but actually fantastic founders. And I think if we as sort of the venture ecosystem can bridge that gap, this is one thing where I'm super excited about in Europe. Second question of the quick fire round, and this one is super relevant for our listeners. What are your top tips for emerging GPs who are fundraising? Since we are also technically an emerging manager, um, like, I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I think for us, the biggest advice that I can give, and this was true as a founder as well, is that you should already start fundraising and preparing as if you are a big professional, right? Have a perfect data room have great documents, great um, everything really prepared for the LPs yeah. and don't just figure it out along the way because you, you sometimes only get one chance, right? With LPs, it's not like you can you can come and pitch them every week or every month and just improve as you go along. You may only get one meeting with, uh, you know, Yale Endowment or somebody like that. Yeah, And if you fuck that up, you can come back in two, three years, but definitely not that fast. And so you should really prepare for that well we see one topic is mostly around ESG policies. Yeah, this sounds sometimes independent of what it's for. It sounds like super bureaucratic, right? Super stupid. Why do I need this? I'm an ESG fund or I'm anyway focused on this, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yes, you need to have these questionnaires ready. You need to be prepared to get these questions. Every large LP in every corporate will look for this. If you don't have this and if you haven't thought of this, you will just not get the money. So I think this is really important to think of the demand of LPs and just be ready for these questions. Third and final question of the quickfire round is what can we expect in the future from AlphaQ and Stefan Heller? <laughs> so it's not just me, AlphaQ. That's really important. It's a big team. Uh, big shout out to Markus Berner, Olli Oster and Marius Weber, my founding partners, but also our entire team. And I think from us as a team, 
you hopefully can expect to democratize venture capital over the years. Yeah, so really make it accessible to anybody and make it as easy as buying any ETF through Trade Republic or any neo broker that you may be using. If we manage this, this will already be something quite game changing. That would be very pleasant because uh, just the other day I was offered uh, to buy an ETF that would hedge me to the future of the uh, pet world. So I thought, okay, <laughs> if I can't get that to European VC, but I can get it to a fucking pet startup pet, <laughs> right, I don't need that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think if we can pull this off, you know, pulling off a large fund of fund in Europe, completely independent, is already one big uh, task. But then also doing a full-scale IPO, with over a billion is another big challenge, but I like challenges. So let's see. <laughs> we for sure need it. So uh, thanks a million for taking a shot, Stefan. And thanks for thanks a million for joining us here today. Uh, it was awesome. Thanks a lot. And yeah, thanks for grilling me. Looking forward to also deliver. Yeah. So let's have a catch up at, in one year and you can hold me accountable. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I'll enjoy that episode. We'll play sound bites and then we'll let you come and <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.